Hi friends, it's Derek, lead pastor at Christian Church Buckhead. Thanks for listening in to these podcasts. Uh, before we get into the content, I want to say just as a preface here, um, one, thank you again for listening in. Two, uh, as a word of an apology, uh, I, I do. I am sorry that these aren't live. They haven't been live for a few weeks. Uh, the software that we use to capture the messages on Sundays has been acting up and for all we knew broken. And so we've been sort of trying to figure that out over the last several weeks. And so, you know, in the meantime, it's it's been sort of weird for me because I just take my notes and I sit here at my kitchen table uh, in the middle of the day, just me and, and my dog, uh, who could care less about what I'm saying. But uh, I just sort of read you the message here by myself, uh, which is harder than it sounds. I just want you to know that. But uh, but I do appreciate you listening in still. Uh, and But the cool thing is, I did hear uh, that Lindsay, our missions director, singles director, and a host of other things, uh, she fixed it. Like somehow she got messed around with it and fixed it. And so we're really excited about that. So week four of this series is going to be live. We'll be back online. And uh, and again, that's, uh, that's reason 68 that we hired her. And so we're really excited about that. But uh, all that being said, thanks for putting up with sort of the weirdness of uh, just sort of a, a quiet podcast. But I'll do my best to um, to redo the content for you in a way that that makes sense. So that being said, let's jump right in. Uh, we're we're in the midst of the series. This is going to be week two. Uh, if you missed week one, I recommend that you hit pause, go back to week one, listen to that because it really lays some groundwork. I'm not going to review a ton of stuff uh, from week one. So if something doesn't sound too familiar. Again, hit pause, go back, and listen to that first talk. But the the message series is entitled Begin Again, Faith Under Repair. And it's the premise is this reality, this truth that every single person, you know, everybody at some point, everybody's faith takes a hit. Everybody's faith takes a hit. Something is said or done or both that makes things like hope and trust and uh, faith in God, difficult things to embrace. And so the question from that that's leading the way through this series is simply, how do you even rebuild a faith? I mean, is it possible to pick up the pieces and put it back together? And more importantly, can it be as strong or stronger uh, than it was before it broke, right? So uh, everybody's faith takes a hit at some point, and that leads to the question, how do you even rebuild a faith when it breaks? Now, last week, I talked about five things, five experiences, five environments that can break a faith, that can lead to uh, some fracture uh, in hope and trust and faith in God. Just a real quick review of these. Uh, the first one that we talked about last week was it may be that you grew up in a very, very toxic religious environment, or really a better term for that would be a fearful religious environment, meaning if you had questions or doubts or confusions about God or his, you know, the, the scriptures or the church or whatever, like you were not uh, encouraged to ask those questions, right? You were sort of left in the margins of the church, like spiritual wandering was uh, a sin, like spiritual wandering, is something you couldn't, you couldn't, and should not do. You should just trust. You should just have faith. You should just accept everything as you hear it. And so, you were the person that 
you know, you're hearing a lesson or you're reading the Bible and you're like, I don't really know what that means or I don't really know if I believe that. And so you bring something up or you don't, if you know the environment pretty well, you just keep that to yourself. Uh, but if you bring it up, then you're kind of ostracized again. You might be pushed to the margins. You might even be told to be avoided, uh, which is the worst thing. And so maybe that's the kind of environment you grew up in. I mean, there just wasn't any room uh, or allowance or reinforcement for spiritual seeking and or maybe confusion or wandering or doubts even. Uh, and so your questions were either not answered or never asked. And so that can, that can really drive a fault line into your faith in future years. Another thing that we talked about last week, the second big reason that a faith can break is simply that you uh, were given a picture of God who had no grace. And what I mean by this is, and it sounds so philosophically backwards to say, uh, and it is, but the image of God, the picture of God that you were given was one that his love for you depended on you. In other words, he won't love you unless you lived up to that, you know, that love that he would give you. And so if you think about it again, logically and philosophically, it's absolutely mind-numbing, mind-bending to, and crazy really to think about if I can actually control by my behavior or by my condition, if I can actually control whether or not God loves me, that, again, logically puts me in the place of God because if I'm able to control whether or not God loves me, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it, it becomes this sort of weird, like, well, wait a minute, who's God here? You know, who, who's the one that actually has the power? I mean, if I actually have the power to stop God from loving me, uh, then things are really sort of mixed up. But you may have grown up in that environment where here's the standard. If you don't meet it, then God, uh, then God does not love you, and he will not love you. That mercy depends on you, that love depends on you. But the whole thing about grace is that grace is quite unfair. And so uh, meaning, at its simplest level, God loves those who don't deserve that. And uh, But again, you may have grown up in an environment where that was not taught. What you grew up with was, look, if you don't live up to such and such standard, then God does not love you. And so that can be, again, that can drive a fault line into your faith uh, as well. Maybe the adult role models that you had were terrible. This is another thing that can break a faith, is uh, your, par you know, your parents being the first and primary uh, images of God in your life, um, maybe they were just terrible at this, you know? I mean, you never missed church, right? You were always there, always dressed up, always smiling, always had your Bible. They always had their Bible. They knew everybody's name. They shook the pastor's hand. They sang all the songs. They, they knew the prayers. They knew the liturgy. Uh, but then they went home, and Monday through Saturday, they they bashed the church. They hate the youth pastor They or the lead pastor or the music pastor or they talk badly about the people in their Sunday school classes and this and that and the other. Or maybe it's just more general, like there was never any charity or generosity or devotional time in your home or whatever. But hey, listen, hell or high water, you never missed church, right? Uh, and I think just over time, people, maybe you graduated high school and it was just such a relief to get out of that uh, strange religious environment where there were really two different lives. And uh, one contradicted the other. That can drive a fault line into your faith, too. 
I think these last two are obvious but need to be said. One is uh, unanswered prayer. I think when people pray for things that are big, I don't mean small things. Like sometimes I'll pick my son up from school and he's hoping that I'll take him to the ice cream shop. But if I turn left instead of right, he'll say something silly like, oh, God doesn't answer prayer these days because I wanted to go to the ice cream shop. But, you know, obviously he's kidding around. But but when you're thinking about big things, when you're praying for big things like healing in relationships or physical healing or uh, just for someone you care deeply about, and and if God seems silent or not there or not listening, that also can put a fault line uh, into our faith, make it feel shaky and weak and drift, like there's drifting happening. And and then secondly, tragedy. I think when something terrible happens, um, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, uh, I officiated a funeral where a mother was burying her son. I mean, that is completely backwards. Uh, that's tra- That's tragic. You don't bury your children, but it happens so often, you know. And I think when something like that happens, it as well can put a crack um, in the certainty of, of faith. And so all of those things combined, uh, hopefully you haven't been through all of those. If you have, email us and we, we can connect you with some great people who can help you through those things. But I'm sure that you, you've experienced one or two or maybe even three uh, of those things. And again, the question is, what do you do? How do you rebuild when faith breaks? Now, the backdrop for this series is uh, a story in the life of Israel's history. And when I say history, I mean quite old, 6th century B.C., some 2,600 years ago. Uh, The short version is, uh, in the 6th century B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. It's growing. It's moving across the land. They, they, uh, they, They take over Judah, and in Judah is the city of Jerusalem. It's a very short historical uh, rendering of this event, but they destroy the city. And part of that destruction was exporting thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, to live as exiles in various Babylonian cities. Not slaves, but couldn't go home. And why would they? Because their home is destroyed. And some 10 years after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, the final blow really to the morale and the faith uh, of Israel was that the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Now, the temple uh, for the Israelites was everything. I mean, it wasn't just a house of worship like a church building. It wasn't just a place they went to do the worship things. But it was also the centerpiece symbol, the visible centerpiece symbol of God's presence among them. In other words, for them, God had this address, you know. So people would say, where is your God? And they could say, he's right there among us. I mean, it was the visible uh, centerpiece symbol of God's presence among them. And their city had been destroyed, but at least they still had this, right? But then that is destroyed, and it was essentially a final blow to the morale and faith uh, of this uh, nation. Now, to sort of put that in perspective, I mean, just imagine the one thing for you uh, that is the uh, visible centerpiece symbol of God's presence in your life, whatever that is, a certain Bible, uh, you know, an experience, a church building, a, a person, I mean, whatever that is, uh, imagine that being taken away from you 
um, it's difficult. And that's essentially what happened. But again, the temple was so tied to the faith of the people, when that was destroyed, it really, it really drove a fault line into the nation's faith. Uh, and through a series of events, in the second half of the 6th century B.C., the Israelites are allowed to return home. There's a change of power going on. The Persian Empire is rising. Uh, and part of that takeover was that the Israelites, and among other nations too who had been taken into exile, were allowed to return to Jerusalem. Now, not everyone did, uh, but a lot of people went home. When they went home, what they found was a city that was destroyed. There was no wall around the city, and uh, worse, was there was no temple. And so those two projects topped the priority list. We've got to rebuild the wall around the temple, and then we've got to rebuild, I mean, the wall around the city, and then we have to rebuild the temple. And so there's all this, like, adrenaline and excitement to do those things. Uh, they do lay the foundation of the temple. Um, and this takes place around 538 B.C. They lay the foundation of the temple. The Old Testament writing of Ezra chapter 3 sort of retells that story. It's really cool. Um, and there's a lot of excitement, a lot of joy. They rebuild the foundation of the temple. Uh, they celebrate. They thank God. And then, for all sorts of reasons, they just stop construction on the temple. And for 20 years, the all it was was a foundation, some bricks, some hammers, some nails, you know, just laying around. It was a construction site that was vacant and abandoned for 20 years. And basically, as, as you'll see, the Israelites had refocused their energies on other things. They had sort of lost interest in rebuilding the temple for whatever reason. And in the year 520, uh, God moves in the heart of this man named Haggai. Uh, Haggai becomes a prophet for God. And the prophet's job was uh, more than anything to speak directly into the modern-day uh, situations in which Israel was drifting from God and to say, look, we need to get back on track. I mean, this is the role of the prophet, uh, first and foremost. And he moves in the heart of Haggai. And really, Haggai has this sort of simple job as a prophet. And it's, it's basically to get the people of Israel to start rebuilding the temple again. Not because God needs a building, but he knows, and we get into this in week four, he knows that the people need the building. He knows that the people need the structure. They need the symbolism. They need that place. Um, and since the building itself was so tied to the faith of the people, uh, because it was just laying there in a pile of ruins, was uh, forming another symbol, which was a symbol of drift for the people. And so what we talked about last week was simply, it's important, you know, the step one in rebuilding a faith is naming the things that tore it down. Uh, but today, uh, the second step is that we have to start listening to the voices of people that God might be using uh, to speak healing into our lives. Now, the text uh, for today, I mean, of course, the big one um, Verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So this is the demeanor of the people. They just sort of have put it off, put it off, put it off, they'll get around to it. And then in verse, verses 5 and 6, Haggai says this, Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat much, but you are never full. You never have enough. I understand what that means. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, this sounds like your typical prophet riff. You know what I mean? It's also one of those things you read that, and this is the thing that makes people mostly say about the Bible, I don't get it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those, what is he talking about? But let me just sort of break this down into uh, into four uh, things very quickly. Number one, uh, you know, Haggai is addressing, I mean, there are actual historical realities that Haggai is pointing out, like real circumstances behind his words. The Bible it's not written to us, but it is written for us. So the first thing we have to do is sort of get in there and what, who is it written to? And obviously it's for us, but it's to these people. So Haggai's pointing at things that we may or may not know about and saying, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. And he's framing it in these really cool riffs, these back and forth sort of word plays. But these people knew exactly what he was talking about. And we can guess, I mean, we can guess as to what he's uh, he's referring to, but there are historical realities, and he's pointing them out, real circumstances behind his words. And basically, the second thing here is that Israel was reluctant to re-engage with their faith and with God because they just they had just sort of left the temple alone, so they just weren't really engaged with it anymore. And Haggai was saying, essentially saying, hey, look, because of our reluctance to rebuild our relationship with God, uh, it's impacting all sorts of everyday things. And so this helps the list make sense, right? He's just listing all these different things like work and pleasure and food and drink and clothing. Like Haggai is essentially throwing this net out there of essentially all of life's experiences are now kind of out of order. And because we're reluctant to rebuild our relationship with God, it's impacting all sorts of everyday things. And the reason is this. Uh, Faith is very relational. We don't worship a thing. We don't worship a building. We don't even worship an idea. We worship a living God. It's relationship-driven. I mean, think about your own relationships. Like if if you're married and you get up in the morning and everybody's getting ready for work and there's this huge fight— and then you exit the door, nobody's happy. Uh, I can't imagine you go to work and just just turn that off and do something else. I mean, if you do, you're you're kind of a mean person. But like, if you're truly in love with your spouse and you leave for work, uh, you know, unsettled in an argument, surely that impacts everything. It impacts how you hear things in meetings. It impacts how you eat. It impacts how you hear somebody's funny story. It impacts how you listen to certain songs. It just impacts how you email people like it should because that's a really, really important relationship for you. And if something is broken in it, hopefully, if it's true for you, if it's something you're quite invested in, it's going to impact uh, all parts of your life. And I think this is what Haggai is saying. is like, listen, the most important relationship we have is with God. We're neglecting it. And therefore, all of life right now is a little bit out of sorts. And perhaps he's addressing, and most certainly he is, actually, uh, there's a real discontentedness among the people of Israel at this time. Like, things just aren't working out. And so Haggai, as a prophet, is going, I'll tell you why. 
we're completely out of sorts. Uh, the triage is out of order. Um, what matters most is not at the top of the list. And the thing is, I mean, in this, uh, in these riffs that he throws out, their frustration with their daily lives, Haggai is saying, was connected to their frustration with God. For whatever reason, they're frustrated with God to the point where they're not going to engage with him. And this is leading to a frustration in everyday life. And the takeaway here is quite simple, that we often assume and live as though faith is separate from life. Right? So when Haggai throws these things out, like here's the deal. We've sown much, harvested little. We eat a lot, but we're never full. We drink, but we're never filled. We clothe ourselves, but we're never really warm. And we earn a lot of money, and we keep losing it. Like he's throwing a big net out there saying everything is everything is out of sorts. And what he's really doing is that he's starting a conversation. He's starting a conversation. Now, solitude is good. I think that at times being a monk is a healthy thing, but only as a temporary thing. I mean, it's good to get away and to think about things, and sometimes we just need to take a walk. But when faith breaks, we also need conversation, and we need to listen to the people that God might be speaking through to us to bring healing. We can't just, you know, we can't just hole up somewhere and, and not be responsible for listening to how God might be trying to bring healing into our life. The Bible speaks of this in many places, but this is one of my favorite. Um, the writer of Hebrews says to uh, the community of people that he's uh, writing to, this is chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, Hebrews is written to uh, second-generation Christians. So these are people who didn't know Jesus personally. They base their faith and trust in God on someone else's testimony and story. That should sound familiar to you because that's the same seat that you and I sit in. And so, in fact, the entire letter is just written to uh, encourage a generation, these second generation Christians who were really, really struggling in their faith again because they weren't first observers. And so it, there's doubt, there's confusion, there's questioning, there's distrust, there's a sense of hopelessness in some cases. And one of the remedies here, late in the, in the letter, uh, the writer says, look, first and foremost, don't isolate. Don't isolate. Stay together. Don't give up meeting together. And what's the point of meeting together? Conversation. Get in the habit of conversation. One of our big convictions at the church um, is simply this, that faith is best worked out in conversations. It's best worked out in conversations. It's not best worked out just sitting in a church building. It's not another Bible study. Trust me, it's not another study. It's not some podcast, right, it, or another one. It's not even only through prayer. Uh, it works itself out best when there's conversation. When you're with people who might be ahead of you or healthier than you in your faith, or you are the one that's healthier or further along than somebody, and you're helping somebody along in their faith. I mean, one of the things that 
uh, I love is the emails and the phone calls and the texts and the conversations between services or whatever where people have uh, questions about their faith or about the Bible or about things that they're reading or whatever. I mean, these are great. I love getting uh, those emails and texts and, and being in those conversations because, you know, it's a chance to talk about faith. It's a chance to work it out. And I love it more when people are like, hey, I'm having trouble with this. And maybe I'm also having trouble with that. So it's a really good uh, place. And nine out of ten times, I mean, if you're in a small group setting and you say, uh, you know, I have some doubts about this or some struggles with that, I mean, most everybody in the group probably is with you on that. So it's just it's just healthy. But normally our tendency is just to isolate or to walk away or neglect. I mean, I get into this in the next message, but one of the reactions to a broken faith is simply neglect uh, of the faith. And one of the things we neglect is just community, uh, conversation, and dialogue, but we have to have those things. And we need, uh, we need people like Haggai uh, who will speak truth into us, who will say things to us that uh, are truthful and that have a lot of substance, but, you know, not just niceties or not just being like random and, you know, you know, just taking up space. Um, I showed uh, in the message on Sunday, I, I was like rifling through my old high school yearbooks because if there's if there's ever been a more uh, or a less genuine social custom, it's it's the high school yearbook signing. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me on that, but if you ever just want to open those back up, if you still have them, I think you'll be blown away at how surface level, if not worse, you know, 99% of the stuff in the yearbook, uh, you know, that were written by your friends. I mean, you'd just be blown away at how meaningless all of it is, you know. And so I was like rifling back through mine the other day. Uh, I even took some pictures of it, had them up on the screen for the message. But I'll read the ones that I put up there for you. I mean, these are just literally, I didn't even like, I didn't even decipher these uh, with much thought. I just, here's one click, here's one click, here's one click. I mean, they're all basically the same sort of thing, but... Uh, here, here's the first one. This is uh, this is from one of my yearbooks. It says, uh, you know, written to me, Mr. Sweatman, uh, you know I don't like you, but since you really look up to me that much, I'll write something. Now he misspelled the word write, by the way. Um, I still I still uh, want to beat you in tennis or chess. You take your pick, but I will show you I'm superior. And he didn't even sign his name. I don't know who this is, but he just signed it, uh, your master. Right. So this is a very genuine. I mean, this is a really great, you know, a treasure, a treasure what he's, he's written. Uh, here's one that says, Derek, well, what do you say to a guy like you? Uh, what do you say to, what do you say to a guy like you? Um, well, I hope, uh, I hope you continue to run there. That's good enough. Well, Derek, I'll see you later. Signed, Carlos. I think there was something wrong with the sound there on the garage band, but okay. The next one says, yo, man, make sure that you treat her right. I don't want to kill you. Signed, David. And then there's his phone number. Like, I need to call David and find out who he's talking about. Uh, here's another one. Derek, and then parentheses, the stud. So this was definitely real and genuine. Um, he says, we haven't been great friends, but I stole your book in civics. Keep cool. Like, this is this is what I'm getting out of this, right? Um, here's one. It says, Derek, well, this year has been real. I know we don't always see eye to eye, but I'm glad we're friends. 
Well, at the beginning of the year, I did actually like you, but oh well, it just wasn't meant to be. Well, call me sometime and we'll go out. And then there's a phone number there too. Um, the last one, I had this picture. <laughs> Basically, my friend Kevin took one entire page of my high school annual and he wrote every single word to the song, the Guns N' Roses song, Welcome to the Jungle, right? I mean, that's just, first of all, props for even knowing all the lyrics on short order. Uh, secondly, you took, up all, you took up all that space just to write a song in my yearbook, right? And the, it's just one of those things where it's like, there's something about being real with people that's hard for us. Like we manage our social self so well. Like we we think extra hard before we post something online or we 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 go we run through all the scenarios of what people might think when we say something. And we manage that so well, picking all the right words to build these walls of safety around the real us. And when it comes to conversations about faith, this sort of yearbook, high school yearbook dialogue doesn't really get us anywhere. We need people to be truthful to us and to speak truth to us. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, uh, 15, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So part of growing up, he's saying, is having people speak truth to us, but to do so in love. As we've said already in this series, faith is not self-healing. When faith breaks, God often uses insiders to speak words of repair into an injured spirit, and these people almost always know our names. And so it's really, really important that we take steps towards community in order to see our faith grow and develop into the thing it should be. I want to close with this. John Wesley said these words, the Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion. In other words, look through the Bible all you want. It knows nothing of an isolated, all-by-myself faith that's mature and flourishing and surviving. It's always in community. It's always in circles. And so with that, uh, I, I, I wish you grace and peace. Uh, if your faith has been injured or it feels broken, uh, stay with us through this series, and maybe there'll be some things that God uh, will say to you through the scriptures and the messages uh, and the experiences that we have together. Grace and peace.